0: Hello and welcome to The Unheard Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. Today we are going to be discussing the thorny topic of capitalism and the seven ills of capitalism. What do we think of modern capitalism? Is it all going swimmingly or is it time for a fundamental rethink? I'm delighted to be joined by Anne Pettifor, who is Director of Policy Research in Macroeconomics, PRIME, Anne is a leading economist, commentator, and analyst. And Anne, um, uh, you can actually take credit for predicting the global financial crashes nice. ahead of most other people. And um, one of the roles you've got now, which is very interesting, is you are part of the inner circle of John MacDonald and Jeremy Corbyn's economics team. So it'll be really interesting to hear your thoughts. Um, and delighted to be joined by Peter Franklin, Associate Editor of Unheard. Um, and Peter, you've you know been looking at... Well, Part of your kind of raison d'etre is looking at capitalism.
1: It is, yes. Yes, and plenty to look at.
0: Plenty. And, and regular listeners and users of the website will know that capitalism is one of the core themes which mm-hmm. Unheard seeks to explore. And Tim Montgomery, our editor, who's not with us um, today, wrote a really interesting piece looking at the seven ills of capitalism following Davos, where the great and the good have mm. gathered. And he pronounced that he thinks John McDonnell's version of capitalism is actually closer to what the public think.
2: Anne, what what do you think about the politics of where capitalism is right now? Well, I think, you know, that Tim's right about that. And, well, I think capitalism is in trouble. I mean, we have to ask ourselves whether this is capitalism. Um, It's a sort of, uh, if you look at it on a global scale, it's a form of global kleptocracy, really. Uh, we're seeing, you know, financial elites, powerful elites, um, effectively governing uh, the global economy and uh, making decisions about, uh, for example, exchange rates, the value of exchange rates, interest rates, that sort of thing, and doing it in a way that's unaccountable. Now we've had this form of capitalism in the past, but there's always been popular reaction to it. And my question is, can capitalism in its current form? And I think it's a form of distorted capitalism. It's it's definitely not free market capitalism. Free market capitalism went out the window some time ago. Uh, And that's because of the rise of monopolies and and oligopolies. and, um, And the fact also that so much of capitalism today rests very heavily on taxpayers. Depends on being able to milk the state or to hide behind the state or to use the state as protection against market forces. So um, so it is a very kind of, in my view, distorted form of capitalism. Um, and the question is, can it survive uh, global populism, the rise of populism, the rise of pu- public anger and resistance? And, and that I think is a question that should be posed to some of the great leaders of capitalism because I believe that populism poses a very severe threat
0: and Peter you know do you do you share that view that there is a kind of political do you think this is filtered down sort of to the man on the street do you think there is a kind of general feeling that people are furious with the way things are at the moment I mean certainly one of the reasons I think Labour did so well at the last general election was the fact that they had this very you know this sort of script which tapped into that do you think do you think there's something in that?
1: Well, I certainly do. Um, I think that uh, what they're agreeing with, with John MacDonald, is not any form of Marxism to the to the, under, to, to the extent that that's understood at all these yeah. days, but it is anger. And as with I'm not making a direct comparison between the the Corbynites and the Trumpites, mm. but what you see in both cases is people flocking behind a banner that um, you know is is you know sticking up to or maybe just one finger to a system that people think is fundamentally unfair. I mean, it's the unfairness mm. that. People get. I mean, they're they're willing to accept. I think a great deal of inequality. Um, there's still. Actually, a quite a lot of popular respect for the genuine on, entrepreneurs, mm. the yep. Elon Musk's and people mm. like that, and mm. um, they're they're popular figures actually. Well, even um, the, the Trumps of this world. I mean, well, a lot yes. of people do, were not fussed by the
0: fact that Trump has a lot of money.
1: Indeed, and and you know, to, to a large extent, in fact, a much greater extent than. Um, say 30 years ago this is a very materialistic still extremely consumerist culture Um, and I don't think any of that is um, the cause of the anger Um, perhaps it should be but what they don't like is people fixing the system it's the stitch up that people hate
2: yes it's the fact that it's rigged and it's rigged in regulatory terms and it's rigged in the sense that that you know in the sense that the bankers were protected they were protected from their own mistakes they were bailed out for their own mistakes but the public Uh, were made to pay the burden of the cost of the of the financial crisis uh, through austerity and so on and that seems grossly unfair
0: and that certainly came up time and time again and again particularly actually during the 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 eu referendum during the 2015 general election even the scottish referendum actually i mean this this narrative of mm. deep anger with the bankers that the phrase you always hear was they got away with it you know yeah. whereas we are now paying the price we all know that wages have stagnated in this country you know yeah. there's you know the cost of living has, has going up but the question is do you think the public think
2: that john mcdonald's economics are the answer well I, I'm afraid I don't really know. I, I, I'm very struck by the recent Legatum uh, opinion survey, which showed the, the popularity of nationalisation of different sectors of the economy. So <coughs> it's clear the public is shifting away from uh, a support for the free market model. Um, but I'm not so sure. I, I, I mean, given that I know a little bit about the Labour leadership, I know that they were totally unprepared for what has happened to them. That, in a sense, I think we all were. <laughs> yes, but they were. They didn't choose this route. The, the, the people chose them, in a sense. And so, what I'm more interested in is what it is that's behind uh, Corbyn and Macdonald, you know. It's it's the popular support for them mm. that I think we should be asking questions about. Where does it come from? There are, there's been a survey recently, uh, yesterday I think, which showed that it, it would not necessarily have just come from the young. Um, it wasn't just the appeal about university fees uh, mm. that, that helped them win. So, <coughs> for me, the much more fascinating question is, why the public, that part of the public, is, has moved to the left. And I'm very encouraged by it, because in most of the, the Europe, and indeed in the United States, the public has moved substantially to the right. I mean, in countries like Germany, to a frightening extent, Germany and Austria, just for to, example. Just to challenge that slightly, with the the Brexit vote that we had,
0: with, yeah. with obviously the, the Leave side winning, and you could argue that culturally... People on that side, you know, immigration was a huge, huge issue. Yes. There was much more of a cultural, um, there were cultural dynamics. You, you could argue that actually you, you saw the majority of the country
2: actually move slightly to the right yes. on those kinds of issues. Well, that's if you think that the Brexit, v- Brexit vote was a right-wing vote. And I'm not sure altogether that it was. I think it, it was more like an anti-globalisation <coughs> vote really it was an anti-globalization vote and Europe is perceived to be part of the globalization process and it's the vote against whatever market forces have stripped me of my job have lowered my wages have prevented my children from finding a decent home or have prevented them from going to university whatever those forces are Mm. I'm voting against them so I think and that would have been both from the left and the right I think. And Peter, do you think that the Conservatives
0: understand the scale of the problem in terms of, because they are very much seen as the, the guardians of the status quo, particularly when it comes to business, commercial interests, capitalism, and it was very striking actually that Ruth Davidson wrote, uh, one of our first essays that we published on Unheard was Ruth Davidson, who many, you know, hope and I feel will take over in the, in the, the Conservative Party, giving quite a critique on capitalism and how it's failed and how it's not working for for society anymore. Do you think the Conservatives are genuinely thinking about revisiting their views on capitalism?
1: Well, I think Ruth Davidson is. Um, If you look at, you know, who's been in power since 2010, one has to conclude no. um, I don't think um, it has properly sunk in um, just how much capitalism is under threat? Um, if you look, for instance, at one of the pillars of, say, uh, an ownership so- society, which is home ownership, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we've seen that um, you know falling quite rapidly since um, around the millennium. Um, and yet, from 2010, we've seen remarkably little action from, first, a coalition and. Uh, than the, the post-2015 Conservative governments um, about reversing that. Um, the, um, and and I, it, it strikes me that it's absolutely fundamental to making the case for conservatism in the 21st century that people, you know, you can't get support, popular support for capitalism if most people don't own capital. yeah, <laughs> It's, that, it's that simple. There is an absolute sort of basic... Yeah. I
0: do think it's interesting that there are some in the Conservative Party, obviously Ruth Davidson, um, Sajid Javid has uh, made some interventions on housing just over the last week or so, saying that you know Nick Bowles is somebody that we've spoken yes. to about this as well. And I do think it's funny how these arguments go in cycles. So when I worked for Ed Miliband and he suggested... We maybe put pressure on developers who were just sitting on land mm. to, to 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 use that land instead of just sitting on it. I think it was called a sort of Stalinistic, um, <laughs> and a Marxist sort of policy. But now I see the conservatives are, are looking at it and saying, "Look, to the land developers, you, you you shouldn't be sort of just sitting on this land waiting for the land to rise in value. You should be building affordable homes on them." So I think it's interesting how these ideas um, spin around. But I do think.
1: Well, I think it, I think actually, was, I used. To work in uh. in the Department of Communities and Local Government, now the Ministry of Housing, um, and people were well aware what was going on with the developers, but there was that lack of political will, and also mm. um, I think a lack of, I don't want to use a new agey word here, Go but on. a holistic understanding of how what we broadly call a market but it's not just a market it's an establishment with various people with um, uh, power over how the machinery works and what politicians I think are really bad at these days is understanding how all the different vested interests work together and even worse at crafting policies that deal with the whole of the problem instead of that awful civil service language about we need to pull a lever. No, you don't. The whole machine needs rebuilding Mm -hmm. because it's fundamentally seized up. And
0: I completely agree with that. I mean, we, when I've worked with various ministers, um, I was a civil servant as well, often when business came in, everybody was baffled. You know, everybody was kind of excited to meet people in business, and it was very important to but particularly as businesses got more technologically advanced, you know, when people, when an army of really bright young lobbyists would come and see you from Google, you know, ministers would be absolutely terrified, you know. They mm. can barely Google their own names, let alone <laughs> sort of, you know, try and take them on on privacy or data yes. issues and all this sort of stuff. And also, you have a bit mm. of a revolving doors sort of <coughs> advisors, civil servants, often going then to work yeah. for these big kind yeah, of companies. Yeah. And how how did it just
2: sort of spiral out of control so much? I think what's happened over the last 30 years, and I think I I, I put this down to financial liberalisation, deregulation, is that we've hollowed out the political process. Uh, We've, you know, for example, outsourcing and privatisation of government uh, responsibilities uh, has meant that politicians no longer have anything really important to do. You know, they sit on those green benches and they no longer decide uh, how much money, for example, goes into public broadcasting effectively or into uh-huh. broadcasting. You know, there's an awful lot that has been, that. you know, when I think back to the 70s, you know politicians were making really important decisions about the allocation of government resources and they've gradually just given away those powers in i feel just to stick up for politicians a bit i think they do do quite a lot of work in their, for their constituents oh, no, no. and things I, I like. just to, to, just to, not just not to stick <coughs> up for them no no, yeah. no i'm not saying that at all i and they are hard-working people i'm merely saying that they had more power because yeah. they had more responsibilities more responsibility to allocate the government's resources you know they managed pensions for example example and then we privatized pensions they managed the railways and then we privatized the railways do you see what I'm saying so these they have whole big sectors of the economy
0: they have definitely outsourced lots of things but just yeah Peter I I
1: quite like to push back slightly on that idea because yes under Margaret Thatcher the 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 states you know she rolled back the frontiers of the state not actually that much and since, over the last 30 decades, we actually saw um, the state's share of the entire economy increased around 50%, I think, before, uh, around 2010. Do you mean by that, government spending? Yes, and that, that's an <coughs> enormous share of the economy. No yes. one can say the state's been been hollowed out. It's It's huge.
2: No, 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 no I didn't say that. I said politics had been hollowed out. Uh, and and political power had been well, hollowed out and given elsewhere. But when when we look at the t- the state's expenditure, that's to do with the fact that the state is c- compensating, if you like, for market failure. That, that is true. On things like tax credits and things, which is that. topping up your wages. Yes. So Indeed, yes. government yes. expenditure is a very different thing, in total, from my view, from you know government's power to allocate resources mm. to different sectors of the economy. But Going back to the privatisations because because that is the hot button issue. I mean
0: yes. that's a really really important issue. Um, as you said, it's incredibly popular. Other surveys, youGov as well. You know, privatising, and yes. renationalising the railways is ragingly popular yes. across every gender, yeah. every class, every region of the country. And we've had the collapse of Carillion and in Capita. London, Oh Capita. We now um, have and we've had, had to called it Interserve as well. So th- there's, this is a really really big big issue. You know, um, the healthcare sector. You know, um, how many private... contracts are going but the question I suppose I want to put to both of you but particularly Anne is I absolutely agree that the principle of PFIs and a lot of this has gone out of control but the state can't do everything you know a hospital cannot make the wheelchairs to give to the to the patients etc you can't the the state can't make the medicine to So where is that balance? You're not saying that you want to completely just rip everything up and have the state do everything. What is the balance? Because there's got to be
2: some partnership between the state and the private sector. Well, I'm I'm just for that old-fashioned term, the mixed economy. I mean, what is wrong with a mixed economy? And just explain what that means, the mixed economy. A mixed economy is that you have both a private and a public sector. Our problem at the moment is that we have a private sector, which actually is um, parasitical on the public sector. So you don't feel they're equal status and, oh, and in oh, terms well, of how well, they're I mean, we don't, have a, we don't have a separate private sector and a separate state sector. Increasingly, the private sector, if you think of banking, the banks are no longer free market private companies. We can't think of that anymore because they are too big to fail because they are too big to jail. That means they don't, I mean, if I grow tomatoes, I'm a small farmer and I'm growing tomatoes, I'm trying to sell them. I don't get protection from the state, but the whole of the banking sector is now protected by the state. Now, um, and I mean, of course, that's not direct. We're not running the banks. We, def- we know we own the RBS, but we're far from running the RBS. Somebody else runs the RBS. We simply pay the bills mm-hmm. as taxpayers. And I, uh, But the fact is that taxpayers are now liable you know, for the failure of Carillion, for the for the failure of the banks and so on. So um, so we don't really have a separate mixed economy. So you almost like think it's, disin- it's almost
0: disingenuous. that yeah. the private sector is called the private sector, but they get like you say, they get
2: this sort of mm. massive free so, protection. So you're but not against you're
0: not against partnership not in terms all. of the delivery fact, of public I, services. One of
2: my one of my why I so strongly advocate public spending is because right now in infrastructure, is because the private sector, as Mariana Matsukato always argues, is like a timid mouse. Very timid right now, because conditions out there are very volatile. Politics is very volatile. It's not a safe environment in which to risk your capital. And But the government is like a roaring lion. The, ro- the roaring lion can take risks. At such times of volatility but when it does when it does invest the beneficiaries are the private sector if if we're to build HS2 yeah private sector gets all the contracts if we're to build a hospital mm-hmm. the private sector could get the contracts without the government having to pay the p- pay those construction companies for the next 50 years massive amounts of rent on their borrowing I mean, that's what I object to. You know, We are paying rent on borrowing, which is at very much higher levels than we would be able to and borrow so do as you, government. Y- you agree with the John McDonald sort of idea that we bring all these big contracts back in where well, possible? Well, I think we should bring in those which are best done by government and those which are best done by the private sector should be done by the private sector. But what, I, what I'd like to see is the finance sector taken out of the equation. Because the finance sector says, I'm the construction company, um <clears throat> i'm going to i'm going to pay for the car park uh and i'm going to borrow the money from the bank so i'm going to pay 15% on that borrowing and then i'm going to make The taxpayers pay 15% on that car park, while at the same time they pay every time they go into the hospital for the car park. And the the beneficiary of that arrangement is the bank, Mm -hmm. getting 15% for nothing, for rent, essentially. So what I'm against is the government could easily borrow at 0.25% to build that car park, pay the construction company, get them to employ workers to build the car park, and then if, you know offer the car park for free to people visiting the hospital or if you're going to charge a fee then the fee must go back to taxpayers not to a bank in the city of london that sounds reasonable peter it
1: does but i think we've got to remember why it is we've entered into these really quite terrible um, contracts it was so that um, previous governments especially labor governments it has to be said could hide the extent to which they were in effect <coughs> borrowing so it's this off money. The books. It's off, off the, the books, books. and yeah. and in doing so, we um, we were going to end up paying a lot more than if we did it honestly and yes. on the books.
2: Yes, but but Right, about that. And that has to do not with government's overspending, but with the accountants inside the Treasury. Unfortunately, there are not enough decent economists in the Treasury, but there's just <laughs> too many accountants. No, on that point, there's two points I want to raise. Yes.
0: first is that in terms of... So all this sounds great, Anne, and I think we... But my, my issue, and I have been a civil servant and a, a special yes. advisor, and I think we know people that we, we've worked with, do you think there is the competence within government to manage these accounts properly because let's be honest nobody has a huge amount of faith in
2: any party's ability to do anything kind of right now well i i mean we've the, one of the things that's happened in the last 30 years and i have to say in particular under osborne's uh, leadership is that we have emaciated the state? You know, I heard today that that the Foreign Office has been its uh, spending has been cut by 40 percent, while the German Foreign Office has had its expenditure increased by 40 so, percent. So the German Foreign Office can go out and sell Germany to the Chinese. The British Foreign Office finds that far more difficult because it's it's got so if we don't have the competence it's because we haven't been uh, prepared to pay the money for the competence we have deliberately dismantled so would our you civil be service. would you be up for
0: you know hiring talented people from the private sector to yeah. come in paying them you know Competitive wages to come in, and and because I think one of the problems is people feel that there isn't the sort of talent within government, or just even the capacity or the ability to understand how to manage these contracts, yes. how to negotiate these contracts, right. how to project manage these things. No, no, I
2: agree. And the, pro- the, and the manage and the contracts have been, I mean, crazy contracts. I think I don't know that any company, I mean, Carillion is a private company that couldn't manage these contracts. Yeah, so. I mean, they but didn't even know not, how many projects yes. were going on at one yes. point. No, no, I think. You know, when I think back to the... I know people complain about British Rail, but I remember that when British Rail was dismantled, we just dismissed all the engineers and all the people who had not just skills, but experience and knowledge. They had and long-time knowledge of how the system worked. Peter has some experience of British Rail.
1: Well, yes, well, um, oh, I... He looks old <laughs> enough. Unfortunately, I am, and um, it was... Much worse than anything today, and I'd have to disagree with Anne in 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 the idea that the state has become less competent. If you look in the post-war period, just one disastrous infrastructure decision was made after another. If you think Such about where, well, the, situ- the, the, the situation of Heathrow, wrong side of London. Um, if you look at um, a whole generation of nuclear power plants, which the Millennium Dome, the Millennium <laughs> Dome, <laughs> um, it, it's it's not a good record at all. Um, now,
0: but does that mean government should just not do any of this stuff? No,
1: it's got. To, we, we need a much better understanding of how technology works and how the kinds of technology we choose to invest in dictate whether we get this horrible sort of. Mm. PFI sort of unaccountable situation or a market supported by government that actually works and if you look at those technologies which have actually that the public has invested in but have got cheaper what you find is that they're generally quite modular type Mm. technologies they're open to competition so a good example of that is actually wind farms Right? You don't, unlike a say a vast nuclear power station, Mm. you can build them bit by bit. And if your contractors don't deliver, then. You, you You hand over the contract to someone else hmm. in a diverse and competitive sector, except that in the case of wind farms, you know the Chinese who heavily
2: subsidized their sector yeah. have now wiped out our sector altogether so we're, so we're back to the story that this isn't just a British issue, this is a globalized it's a, issue it's, it's a global issue
0: and just I think on our um, final point, just to bring it back to the politics, maybe part of the way forward for this is. Just being more honest with the public about the fact that we do need to invest in our services, we do need to invest in things. Don't do things off the books and make a political yes. argument, an honest political
2: argument I think for investments. I can't agree with you more. Oh, because the public, uh, the public really is wise to politicians trying to pull the wool over their <laughs> eyes, basically. You know, and I, I really think honesty in public debate is something that we really desperately need, for sure. Well, I think
0: that's something that we can all agree on. Um, Thank you so much, Anne, for joining us. Thank you um, to Peter. You can read, Anne has um, written an essay for us on the Unheard website, and there's some fantastic content on our series about capitalism, including an excellent piece by Liam Halligan as well, um, as well as our editor, Tim Montgomery. Thank you very much for listening to the Unheard podcast. We'll see you next week.